I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You know, in difficult times, um, leadership is essential. In, in really troubling times, strong leadership is essential for the people. You think about even in the history of our country with George Washington in a very difficult time in the founding of our nation, uh, he provided great and strong leadership. You think about Abraham Lincoln, a time of great travail for our country, gave strong leadership, bringing about a unity of our nation. Uh, think about even Winston Churchill in the Second World War, his his leadership galvanized a nation against Nazism. So, so leadership is essential, particularly in times of trial. Now, you know that Peter is writing to a people who are under duress. They're struggling. They're getting pressed. They're getting harassed over their faith. And so Peter is writing to these leaders, and he's saying the leadership of the church is essential for the preservation of a people, for, for their good. These believers were ha- harassed. They were facing marginalization, social ostracism, financial pressure. And he's saying that your leadership is fundamental to their faithfulness and to their perseverance. And so that's what he's writing. Here we are in this letter, and he's speaking specifically to the elders. But what's interesting is he writes it to the church, because you need to hear this. You need to understand God's word for the leadership of the church, both so you can recognize elders among you, but you can be thankful. This is really a gift of God to us, that God would give the church leadership to help a people persevere. In fact, so central is the leadership to the health of the church Let me give you a quote from John Calvin, the great reformer of the 16th century. This may sound startling to you, and I think it may be more indicative of where we are as a people as opposed to what he says. Here's what he writes. Not even is the light and heat of the sun, not even is meat and drink so necessary for the support and cherishing of our present life as the apostolic and pastoral office for the preservation of the church on earth. That is significant. I mean, we live in an age of spiritual nons where they're not connected at all. They're, they're just they're spiritual cowboys riding on the range. And you hear a word. Now, Calvin preached in a time of great travail for the church. The leaders were the first to go. The leaders were the first to be... He said, this is how important it is. So this is really, I I trust, will be instructive to you. So you see how he starts. He says, so I exhort the elders among you. 
So he begins speaking to the elders, and you're going to think that he's going to keep going right on with his instruction, which you see in verse 2, right? Shepherd the flock of God that's among you. But he doesn't. He kind of stops and gives a little parenthesis. He says, as a fellow elder, Peter is modeling humility and leadership. He says, as a fellow elder, he doesn't assert his apostolic identity. He doesn't assert his apostolic authority. He doesn't say, hey, I was there at the resurrection and you weren't. He doesn't say, I was one of the three that got those special times with the Lord. You weren't. He doesn't assert any of that. He says, no, I'm a fellow elder. He identifies with them. But he doesn't just identify with them as a fellow elder. He identifies as one who has witnessed the sufferings of Christ. Now, you remember Peter. Peter actually objected to the sufferings of Christ. Remember when Jesus said he would die, and Peter says, no way, that's not going to happen? Now he's testifying about it. He sees its importance. Not only did he see Christ suffer, but Peter himself has suffered. And so he's identifying with these elders that he too has suffered in ministry. But then you notice He identifies with them over the glory that's to be revealed. I want you to hear just his joy bust out of his chest that he will be a partaker with them in glory. I mean, for Peter, suffering and leadership, that's that's a reality. But so is the glory to be revealed. In Peter's mind, suffering and glory are inseparable. And he's encouraging these leaders to understand that. In fact, I'm glad. You know, there's nobody better than Peter that could tell us this. I mean, if you think about Peter, you know, a bold leader who failed boldly, and yet in in God's mercy, Jesus drew him back. You know that passage I'm speaking about in John 21, where, you know, Peter denied Jesus three times, and Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, you know I love you. He says, then feed my sheep. And then, of course, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. And he says, then tend my lambs. And then Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter says, you know everything. You know I love you. He says, then feed my sheep. It's a beautiful, he's, this is why I hate the closing of preaching through a letter. We're good friends with Peter now. I mean, I hate to see an old friend leave. He is encouraging these elders, these leaders, that that feed the sheep, shepherd the flock. It's incredible what he's doing for us. And what he's going to share with us is these three principles of leadership that we have to grasp. First, he's going to tell us about the call of leadership, the call of being an elder. Then he's going to speak about the manner, how elders ought to elder. Why do they do it? What's the motivation? And then last, the reward of an elder. What will come to them? And then we'll look at verse 5 just momentarily to see the response of the church. So look with me at the call of the elder, what the task is. What are they supposed to do? Notice he says, I exhort the elders among you. That word elder doesn't mean one older in age. It speaks to an office. It speaks to the spiritual leader of the church. And notice that he says the elders among you. It's plural. Even in the beginning of the church, the church was run by a plurality of elders. Paul tells Titus, appoint elders in every city. 
This is a good thing for us, a plurality. Churches have more than one elder. Why? Well, because it's a, it's a, a balancing of a variety of gifts. It's increased wisdom. It's shouldering the load. Do you realize that a survey in 2014 that I think it's 1,700 pastors leave the church every month, every month. Now, obviously, some of those are due to retirement, perhaps changing careers. But for many, they're just overworked. And most churches don't have a plurality of elders. So you see the wisdom here. He says, the elders among you shepherd the flock. Now, this idea of eldering and shepherding, it's not new to this passage in Peter. You see it in the Old Testament, Moses. He was both a leader and a shepherd, right? David, a leader and a shepherd. And they were, of course, following God, who is the shepherd, right? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. So the Lord's a shepherd. So here, Jesus is the chief shepherd, and he's speaking to these elders who are the under-shepherds. Now, we've already seen Jesus be called a shepherd in this letter. In chapter 225, we read, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So Jesus himself is both a shepherd and an overseer. So, And you notice in this passage here, Peter in verses 1 and 2 calls the elders, he says, to the elders among you, shepherd, that word is our word for pastor, shepherd the flock, exercising oversight or overseers. You see three different terms here. Elders, shepherds or pastors, and overseers or bishops, they're all used for the same person. You see the same thing in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Paul's traveling back to Jerusalem. He calls the elders from Miletus. He says, now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So they're both elders and overseers. Be shepherds, that word for pastor, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So you see here that there aren't three levels or three offices. It's one. He's appointed these elders to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. But what does this mean? What is the exact task of the elders? Well, of course, being a shepherd, there is the leading part of it, right? The guiding, there is the protecting part of the sheep. And then you also have the caring for the sheep. Let's look at each one, the leading. Elders are to lead the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, 17, he says, let the elders of the church direct the affairs of the church. Elders are given to the church to direct the affairs, the administrative affairs, the financial affairs, the ministerial affairs. I mean, what? it's like a parent over a home. The mother and father provide for the home. They make sure that things are running well. They're giving oversight to the home. They don't leave part of the home to just take care of itself. They try to lead a good and a safe home where they're, in fact, caring for their children. That's what the elders do. They're to oversee all the functions of the church. This, of course, includes guarding the church. The elders are to guard the church. Sheep are notoriously non-particular about what they're going to eat. They'll eat poisonous weeds. And so it's up to the shepherds to, to guard, to help, help protect the sheep, both from within and from without. Part of this protection is teaching, feeding, making sure the elders oversee the teaching in the pulpit, teaching in the classrooms, teaching in the care groups. We want to make sure that you get strong theology. Make sure that you get, you get um, proper theology. Not just, not just in the mind, but also in the practice. 
So the, there's this oversight of the teaching. The elders do new member interviews. They want to make sure that, that these people coming into this church are, in fact, Christian. They want to guard and protect the flock. But also these elders are called to care for the sheep. You know, in Acts 20, where Paul speaks to these elders of Ephesus, he says, pay attention to the flock. To pay attention is more than knowing a name. To pay attention is to, is to intersect, to encourage, to intercede for, to seek to offer counsel and wisdom to those struggling in life, whether marriage or family or finances. It's to, it's to share in the joys. It's to weep in their sorrows. It's even to bring correction. Nobody likes correction. But I'll tell you, on that final day when you stand before God, godly correction will be a thing of great grace to you. So they offer correction. They pursue the flock. You know, we have people that begin to straggle on the sides and become outliers. They're called to go pursue them. In Peter's mind is really Ezekiel 34 is the backdrop. And I would encourage you today, if you have time, to read that chapter. Because God is bringing a harsh word to the failed shepherds of Israel. And they didn't feed the flock. They didn't care for the flock. And they didn't pursue the flock when the flock began to wander. In fact, in Ezekiel 34, 6, he says, My flock, this is God speaking, My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill, and my flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Why? Because they were concerned about themselves. Your others are not. Godly shepherds are for your good. They're for your good. I mean, they're here for you. I, one, of, one of the verses that struck me probably most profoundly entering ministry was in Philippians chapter 1, 21 and 22. Paul's kind of giving his philosophy of ministry, if you will. And he says these words. He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. He wrote this letter to the Philippian church. He's in jail, probably could be nearing death. He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I'll continue with all of you for your progress and your joy and faith. You see what he's saying here? He knows he's near death. He desires to depart and be with the one who saved him. And yet he's convinced that it's better for the church that he stay. Why? For their progress in joining the faith, that they would grow in the knowledge of Christ and that they would grow in affections for Christ. And so he stays for them. It's for their spiritual good. The elders are for your spiritual good. So how do they do this? Well, let me just pull the curtain back a little bit for you. So the elders we meet every other week, or really the first and third Thursday nights, generally, for about three to three and a half hours, and uh, we gather around a meal, and we usually share what grace God is doing in our lives, or perhaps what struggles in our lives, and we pray for one another. And then we go through the membership directory, usually two to three letters at a time, and we mention each member by name, and we find out who in the room has had closest association with them in the past month. How are they doing? How, are they struggling? Are they growing? Are they plugged into the church? How plugged in they are? If they're not plugged in? And then we make a list of who we're going to call, who's going to call who. If someone's not coming, who's going to call the person? And then we pray for you by name. And then we go through the list of all the different things in the, the responsibilities of the church, the 
facilities, the finance, the education, the missions, and, and on down the list. And already up to this point in the year, except for the deacon facilities, Scott Forney, we've seen every leader of those different ministries. We ask them to come in. They tell us how they're doing. What do they need? How is it going along? What can we do to help you? And then we pray for them. And then on top of these things, they, these, the elders are involved. They're both discipling, but they're also engaged as, um, you know, it's different for each elder, but may be engaged in the life of a saint who's troubled or struggling and uh, seeking to walk with them for your spiritual good. It's, it's for your fruitfulness. Godly leadership and godly authority is for your good. You know, David's last words, as recorded in 2 Samuel, he said this. Pretty important it would be his last words. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me and his words on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. It's good for you. It's good. You know, if you think about Paul's life, the Apostle Paul, you know, when he wrote his last few letters to Timothy, before death, most feel that those were his last letters, uh, he writes to Timothy to preach the gospel, and he encourages to preach the gospel and to raise up faithful men who will preach the gospel. But it's interesting, Paul knew at that point It's more than just the preaching of the gospel. And so he gives Timothy instructions. Appoint elders, and here's what they're to be like. Appoint deacons, and here's what they're to be like. There's a need for church structure to promote the gospel. In fact, Carl Truman, a contemporary theologian, wrote an article, kind of a tongue-in-cheek. The title of the article is, The Gospel is Insufficient. And his point in the article is that the gospel needs a church in which is preaching it. The gospel can't just go randomly, but, but there needs to be these institutions, the church itself, that has to be the promoter, the propagator of the gospel. In some ways, the protector of the gospel and the people. This is God's grace to you, that he would raise up leaders who would sacrifice themselves so that you would be prepared to see God on that final day. That's the charge of the leadership of this church. Do you see it that way? I mean, do you see the necessity of being under the authority and leadership of fallible men who are seeking the Spirit of God to lead you to Him? I mean, in this day and age, we live in a very anti-authoritarian culture. We want to be the authority in our own lives. And here God has designated the church to have leaders for your good. Something to be thankful about. Th- something to be thankful about, thankful about and to think over. And I often think if you're not a Christian, you know, it, it, there's somewhat of a danger to just live life as you have it. Because you change over years. And does that mean your philosophy of life changes? Who brings wisdom to bear? Are you limited to live your life only by the wisdom that you have between your two ears? And then who do you seek for wisdom? And how will you feel about them in 10 years? You may have guided your life according to wisdom of somebody that you disagree with later. But if you're a Christian here, you can be thankful 
that God would not leave you alone, would not just give you the gospel and say, go for it all by yourself, but he would put you within a body. So that's the task. The task is for your spiritual good, to, to, to guide you, to lead you, to love you, to feed you, protect you. But look with me in verses 2 and 3, because he talks about the manner of how elders are to lead the church. And I want to remind you of the context of the letter. Remember now, this church is under persecution. It may not be physical persecution all across Asia Minor, but they were facing some serious persecution, some serious ostracism, some serious cultural antagonism. And and I think what was happening, most scholars think that, in fact, many of the elders were leaving. They did not want to serve as elders, because when persecution comes, they take the head off first, and then they go after the rest. And and so the elders began to be a little concerned about their own lives. They began to flee. And other elders, who were not so godly, if the other ones were very godly, they began to jump into the church because they thought this was an opportunity to begin to profit. You know, when things are amiss, they can jump in and profit from it. And so Peter begins to give instructions about how you ought to do it. What is the manner in which you are to elder? And so look with me, because he does this three-part kind of negative positive. Don't do this, do this. Don't do this, do this. Look at the first one. He says, don't do it under compulsion, but willingly. In other words, if you're going to be an elder, don't serve because you have to serve. Like you've been drafted. Like it's the only way out. You know, don't serve if this is what you you think you must do. There are people staying at their post only out of pure duty. Listen, elders have to do things that they don't enjoy, but they're not governed by duty. If you're governed by duty and not love, you've missed the mark. Now he says, do it willingly. Do it willingly. No no doubt, leadership has demands, and many of the demands are not pleasant, but there needs to be a willingness to it, a desire for it. And, And the willingness has to be born out of your love for God. Because he says, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. In other words, it's the sight of God, the glory of God, the work of God in Christ, as Ray was praying, that here Christ has come down, the plan of God, to reconcile us to himself, that we're forgiven, we're now free, we're now declared innocent. God has done all of this for us in Christ. And the elder has to be mindful of that, so that he's willing, yes, I want to do this. It's like the Marines. You know, the Marines are the only voluntary branch of the military. Why? Well, they usually get stuck in some very tough corners. And you want an all-volunteer group to have to do these things. And that's what elders, they're to be willing. They're to be desirous. Again, not driven by duty, but driven by love. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said about the distinction between duty and love. C.S. Lewis writes, a perfect man would never act from a sense of duty. He'd always want the right thing more than the wrong thing. Duty is only a substitute for love, like a crutch, which is a substitute for a leg. Most of us need the crutch at times, but of course it is idiotic to use the crutch when our own legs can do the journey on their own. So he's calling elders, do it out of a love, a willing love. But not just that, he says, don't do it eager, or he says, don't do it dishonest or uh, greedy for gain, but do it eagerly. 
In other words, the service of an elder should not be for dishonest gain. Now, this was the case back in Peter's day. Some saw the placement in the church as an easy means of living. They were doing it for what they could get out of it. Now, maybe some enter the leadership of the church not just for financial gain, this was what it may apply here, or it may be social capital, you know, rep- reputation, recognition. I get a high spot. My name's known. People come to me. And so people will often do it for that reason. He's saying, don't do it for those reasons. Why? Here's why. Because when trouble comes, they're the first out the door. I mean, if you, if leadership is driven by selfish motivation, the gain that they can have, when that dries up and persecution comes, they're gone. They're they're the first ones gone. But rather, he says, do it eagerly. The elder is to serve because he wants you to grow in your faith and love for God. He may be more or less comfortable on an individual or corporate basis, but his goal in investing in the church is for the betterment of the church. He's eager. He's excited. He's delighting in the sense that his role will mean your betterment on that final day. But not just, not just you know, we're to do it willingly and eagerly, but notice he also says not domineering over those in your charge. Not domineering. But in fact, being an example. You know, the church has known many authoritarians. And many of you here, I think, have been under the thumb, perhaps, of, of a domineering leader. Could have been in your home, could be at work. Perhaps it was even in the church. And I grieve for that. Um, I do. But I want to remind you that a bad example doesn't deny a good principle. You know, when he says, don't act in a domineering fashion, the reason that Peter instructs the elders this way is because the sheep aren't yours. The sheep aren't the elders. The the, the flock isn't the pastors. You you saw in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. In in Acts 20, he says, the the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I had this mentor when I was in seminary, kind of a, a year-long mentorship with this uh, sweet guy. And he would say to us, he said, when you take a pastorate, don't ever say it's your church. Don't ever refer to it as my church. He says, you didn't, you didn't bleed for it. You didn't suffer for it. You didn't die for it. You're not coming back in glory for it. You're a steward for a time. You're overseeing it. You're taking care of the flock, but it's his flock, and it'll always be his flock. You're important to the flock, but it's never going to be your flock. That was hugely instructive for me. Never forgotten that in close to 30 years, just dwelling upon that idea. That's what he's saying here, not domineering over those in your charge. That word, in your charge, that Greek word means someone thing or someone's been apportioned to you from another. God has apportioned this flock to the leadership of this church. It's God's, but it's been apportioned to us for a season of time. And we're called to be good examples to the flock. That's what eldering is. Sheep aren't driven, they're led. And so people are not driven, they're led. And we lead by example. This is the beauty of a long-term pastorate, long-term elders, long-term membership, is you get to see the life of these elders. It's not perfect. It's not perfectly motivated. It's not perfectly lived. 
You see repentance take place in their lives. But you get to see the lives of people. You get to see them raise their children. You get to see their marriages mature. You get to see them over time. And you get to pattern your life after them. That word for pattern is like, you know, when you learned to write as a child. Oftentimes they would put the letter underneath a piece of paper that you could see and you would trace the letter. You learn to write by just tracing out the pattern you see. That's what Paul is, or Peter is saying to us. Pattern your lives after those godly leaders that you respect. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says it this way. He says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Again, it's not perfection here. We're, we're just trying to provide models. That's what the elders to do. So the manner of eldering is seen in a, a willingness and eagerness and a patience because it takes time. It takes time to allow your life to be patterned. Think back when you were younger, the favorite teacher you had. Back, it may be way back when. Most of the time, most, most people can say, yeah, this was a special teacher that I had. And usually what identifies that teacher as special is not the content of their teaching, but it was the character of the teacher. It was the way they lived their life that you, that you saw and it impacted you. That's what the leader is to be, concerned about living his life in a way that's imitatable. Not perfectly imitatable, but that it might be followable. So elders are to be here uh, men who desire. It doesn't say men. It does, of course, in First Timothy. Elders are to be the husband of one wife. But we in this church would hold it to be a position for men, not because they're smarter by any stretch, but God has designated the, the man, given the man in nature, that he has had him to be the leader in this church, in his church. Uh, but, but there to be men who desire. In fact, Paul says it this way in First Timothy. This is a trustworthy saying, he says. He says that if anyone, if any man desires the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's a noble task. Now, of course, this, this shepherding that I'm speaking about here and the way I'm describing it, it does at some levels apply to everyone here. The desire to be willing to serve the, the one who's eager to see others grow in Christ, the one who wants to live his life as an example, that should be all of us at some level, right? But because I want you to see here that the elders, the, the manner of elder, you don't create that. We don't have a class that you can take to become an elder. You know, if you take the class, now you're ready to be an elder. We have leadership classes. We're going to have a class. We have a class for men running right now. We're going to have a class for ministerial training for women in the fall. Uh, these help develop leadership skills, but there's no eldership class. As if you can go to an elder, okay, now I'm ready to be an elder. Why? Well, you see the internal motivation is here. You, you can't teach that. You know, elders are discovered. They're not created. You know, we see people eldering. And this is why as a church we want to be praying for the elders we have. We want to be praying for the elders that will be. We need elders to rise up. We need people to be eldering before they're eldering, is what really I mean to say. And we need to pray for that. The church needs to, to promote that within herself. Okay, so we see the task of the elder. We see the manner of the elder, willing, eager, and wanting to be example. But let me tell you about the reward of the elder. Look in verse 4. In verse 4, you have this, when the chief shepherd appears, when he appears, 
uh, you will receive a crown of unfading glory. This is interesting to me. Peter knows he's just given a tall order. Peter knows he has laid a, a serious responsibility. In fact, Charles Bridges, a, a great Anglican pastor, British pastor in the eight, uh, 19th century, a contemporary of uh, Charles Spurgeon, he said this, the weight of ministerial responsibilities renders the work apparently more fitting for the shoulder of angels than of men. He sees the weight of what this task is. And so Peter now is coming in verse 4 to encourage us, to strengthen us, to strengthen the elders that are wavering at their posts, who are weary at their posts. And he says, when the chief shepherd comes, when he appears, when he is made manifest, when his splendor is revealed at the return, you'll receive the crown. Now, now that expression, the crown of unfading glory, it's to draw our minds back, if you will, if you lived at that time, you would see crowns or wreaths placed upon heads of athletes who competed and succeeded, and they're victorious. But the crowns that were placed on their heads faded in weeks. This will never fade. In other words, Peter is drawing, remember Peter, the one who says the end of all things is at hand? He's the one saying, elders, look to the day when he appears. He is made visible to you. And he'll put a crown of unfading glory. When he opens the books and he sees the labor, he's going to give you glory and splendor. I don't even know how to explain that. I don't even know what that is. I don't think it's a, a literal crown. But, but it's sharing of his glory. It's sharing of his honor for those who have labored diligently among his people. What Peter's doing is he's giving us this future hope of glory to sustain strength in the present through the, through the trials and the tribulation. This future promise is giving present faithfulness, strength for present faithfulness. Listen to John Calvin. Again, he quotes regarding leadership. He goes, Lest then the faithful servant of Christ be broken down. In other words, the weights of ministerial responsibility. He says, Lest the faithful servant of Christ be broken down. There is for him one and only one remedy, to turn his eyes to the coming of Christ. Thus it will be that he who seems to derive no encouragement from men or women will assiduously go on in his labors, knowing that a great reward is prepared for him by the Lord. So, so the elder is called to dwell on that day, through the weariness, you know, through the struggles, through the trials, the weariness of his own weaknesses, his own inabilities, his own lack of wisdom, and, and the, the no shortage of criticism, to look to the day. To, to be encouraged by the day. This is what Paul wrote to Timothy, incidentally, in the second letter. Paul, again, knowing that he's going to die, encourages Timothy. He's passing the baton. He's going to be the next generation of leaders. And here's what he says to him. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. That's a good opener. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. He is the judge of the living and the dead. And he's going to appear and his kingdom will come to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's the charge he gives. And the elder is also to keep his eyes, not just on the day, but on the good shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He said in John 10, I am the good shepherd and I lay my life down for the sheep. This is the gospel, that Jesus has come 
to willingly lay his life down that he might reconcile us, sinners, broken to the core, never able to make things right with God. He lays his life down that he may bear the righteous indignation of God that we might bear the pleasure of God, reconciling us to the Father. He has done that, and so his under-shepherds are to follow him, laying down their lives, not to save the sheep, but to serve the sheep and to, and to secure their salvation through teaching and guiding and leading and loving. This is what we're called to do. Do you see the tall order given to the leadership? Do you see? But I, I want you to see, as we prayed this morning, before the, we're not looking to promote men. We are men with clay feet. It's the goodness of God to provide the church people that would be willing to serve. That's incredible. I want us all to just stop and say, thank you, God, for being so gracious that we don't have to wander through this pilgrimage alone and on our own, teaching ourselves, having to learn the lessons over and over again. But someone has been given to us to look over our souls. It's incredible how good God is to us. Well, look in verse 5 with me for just a minute. I just want to jump into this because implicitly there's a response. Likewise, you who are younger... Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now this is interesting. After Peter tells us about the task and the manner, and he teaches about the reward of eldering, then he he says likewise. So he's, he's looking to contrast, he's looking to move. Likewise, you who are younger. Now who is this? Well, I don't know who this is exactly. It, it could be those that are younger in age. They do tend to be... Um, Oftentimes impetuous, impatient. They want to probably run ahead of those who are the elders of the church. Those who are young tend to be a bit overconfident in what they know of life. Usually those, I always, there's this equation, if they're half my age, they know twice as much as I do. I don't know how that works in terms of mathematics, but, but, but there's a sense of overconfidence in what they know about life. And so there tends to be this idea of wanting, maybe he's speaking about them. I was touched one day by uh, Katie, our firstborn, after um, going through seminary for a year. She came back very educated and very wise after her first year, and she made this bold declaration to me, and I took this as a compliment. She goes, you know what, Dad? After a year of seminary, I think you know some things. (laughs) Said, and we paid one, two, three. How many thousands, honey, did we pay for that? But maybe speaking to younger people. But he may also be speaking to younger leaders. It may be a group of deacons, perhaps, that are, are wanting to move beyond the direction of the church given by the elders. Or perhaps it's maybe an expression really to all of us. You know, those who are older and those who are younger. Those who are elders and the rest of the church. But either way, however you read this interpretation, I think he's speaking about the response of the church to what he's just said about eldering. And the response to the church is marked by a humility, a submission. Submission is not mute acceptance. It's not mute agreement. There is discussion, and there can be room for disagreement. But I think what the submission is, is there's a posture of desire to follow the ones that God has made overseers of the church. Now, what does this look like, though? This is where the devil's in the details, right? So how does this look in our lives? What does submission look like? Well, I would say first it would be to become aware of the role. To be aware of, you know, many of us, I think, are just innocently ignorant of what elders ought to do and what role they ought to have in our lives. 
Uh, others perhaps are in fear. Maybe you're in fear of opening your lives up. You know, I've had some people not want to talk to me about anything, as if I have no place or any of the elders or any of the leaders, the staff, in their lives. But, but I, I would say at least, the first thing I would say is at least become familiar with it or explain to us why it means something different than we think it means, but become aware of it so that you might appreciate it, you might grow in accepting it. Uh, secondly, I would say that you would open your hearts to the leadership of the church. You know, to, 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 to be perhaps a little bit more transparent. Maybe you've been hurt before and this is a difficult road for you, and I can, I can appreciate that, but maybe open your hearts a little bit more to them. Display yourself. Maybe uh, be a little bit more transparent that they might know you so as to serve you better. You know, Paul had to ask the Corinthian church. He planted the church in Corinth, and in his second letter, uh, some hip preachers came in and kind of swayed Paul, or swayed the church to follow them. And they stopped listening to Paul. So here's what he had to write to them. He says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding your affection from us as a fair exchange. I speak to you as my children, because he planted the church. Open wide your hearts also. Have you opened your hearts to the leadership of this church? Have you, do you take a posture of humility and willingness to follow? Are, are you disclosing of the struggles that you have? I, I would say a, a third thing that you could do is to seek their counsel. Invite them into your life. You know, I follow the pattern in James. You know, James says, if anyone among you is sick, let him call the elders. There is the responsibility of the church to speak, to reach out for the elders. The elders don't always know what's going on in the life of the saints. So it might come from you first. But, but that you would engage them in terms of wisdom. Yeah, they're not the only ones with wisdom. You can ask other brothers and sisters for wisdom as well, right? There's, there's wisdom in the counsel of many. But surely those who are given charge over your souls ought to know if things are going on in your life that are significant. I have people that take jobs and just leave the state for a $10,000 raise. And I'm like... Well, could we have prayed for you? Could, would you want us to know? Is it worth 10000 You'll be out of, you're in a church, you're in a body, you're known, you're loved. People would sacrifice for you. And for a slight raise in salary, you're going to go up. And for three years, you really won't be known. You won't be plugged into a church. You'll be finding your way around. That's a big part of your life. I'm not saying you've got to ask us. That's not my point. My point is the seeking of wisdom and the working together so that everybody's prepared to see God. I would just encourage you toward that. Not just a job change, struggle with kids, or whatever the case is. And then I would say another thing to consider in terms of what does it look like to submit to the elders would be invest yourself. Ask the elders. Invest your life in the church in the sense of not just what you give, but the talents you have, the time that you have. You know, the, 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 you don't have to be seminary trained to serve in the nursery. You don't have to be seminary trained to be an usher. I think too many times we think, well, I don't have enough knowledge, and we write ourselves out of usefulness in God's kingdom. Please don't do that. God's distributed a variety of gifts to you, and invest those in the church. Here's what I, I would ask you a question, and this is for you to answer and to think about. If everybody in the church did... Only what you do, to the extent that you do it, whatever your investment in this church is, maybe great, it may be small, if everybody did only what you do, where would the church be next week? Would the doors be open? Would we be yards ahead? 
Let me ask you again. If everyone in the church invested only what you invest in terms of time and talent and treasure, where would the church be? It's all of us. That'd be one way of submitting to the elders is, is, yes, this is what I have to offer. It's the two fish. It's a couple stale pieces of bread. A lot of people were fed that day. A lot of people went home with full bellies. The last thing I would say is pray and encourage these elders among you. Uh, Particularly the elders, the lay elders, Ray Rutledge and Keith Smith and Levy, Regalado, and uh, Larry Frerichs. You know, uh, the staff and myself, you know, you're taking care of us, and we're grateful for that. These men labor diligently for you. They're worthy of your honor. It says in First Thessalonians, Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. So let me encourage you to do that. Let's take a, a minute now and just consider these things. I've, I've gone through the task of eldering and the manner of eldering. I've gone through the, the uh, reward of eldering. I've looked at how the church responds. And, and I hope you don't hear this as any sort of chiding. This is more instructional. It's meant to be encouraging over God's goodness to you regarding the leadership that's been given to this church. And so let's take a minute now and perhaps confess that we have failed to appreciate it, failed to honor, perhaps we have not opened wide our hearts. And, and, and perhaps if you have, then be thankful and give, give thanks to God for his kindness to you in these elders. And pray for our church that we would have men who desire this, who are willing and eager and desirous to be examples to the flock. And then I'll close this in just a minute.